It was unprovoked, but this is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine as the sun came up this morning. A missile striking an industrial park in western Ukraine. A helicopter assault on an airport outside of Kiev. Close, intense fighting. And there are civilian casualties. Another barrage before dawn. Ukrainian anti-aircraft batteries intercepting a Russian missile over the capital. One of two shot down this morning. As the assault closes in on Kiev, two and a half million civilians are suddenly on the front line. Ukrainians finding shelter wherever they can. These people rushing to the subway, hoping they may be safe there from an assault they did not start nor want. The civilians here had to deal with the threat from their occupiers. This hour with breaking news from Ukraine. Russian missiles have hit a crowded shopping mall in the central Ukrainian city of Kremenchuk. More than a thousand people are believed to have been in the center at the time of the attack. But hundreds of miles away on a different front line, the official American help is being moved into position. A not-so-secret weapon. Now, HIMARS are some of Ukraine's most highly valued weapons. They're terrified, really, of the Russians finding out where they are, so we've been taking to this secret location. U.S. howitzers are also here. The power of that gun is just unreal. It sucks the air out of you as it goes out. Now, this is an active combat zone. They are finding Russian targets. These weapons are far more agile than anything Ukraine had before, so they can fire from sloped or rocky areas and take the Russians by surprise. And now this conflict is turning into even more of a proxy war, competing world orders clashing over this slice of Eastern Europe. With Luhansk already in Russian control and Donetsk in their sights, huge swathes of territory are slowly being swallowed up. Ukraine says it's entering a crucial period where it needs more foreign help to push Putin's forces back before the winter comes. If not, Russian roots will sink so deeply into their land that they'll get frozen in place and the country they knew may be lost for good. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. So we all know what's happened since the events that were outlined in that cold open. As of this drop, Russian forces continue to batter cities and villages all along eastern Ukraine inflicting mass devastation and untold casualties and atrocities upon the Ukrainian people. Armed with tens of billions of dollars worth of advanced weapon systems, including heavy artillery, anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, armored vehicles, drones, and so much more, all supplied by the Biden administration, the Ukrainians are fighting back. City by city, village by village, inch by bloody inch. But what started this anyway? I mean, we all know what the US government and mainstream media say. Evil Russian President Vladimir Putin did this, cause you know, evil gone evil. <laughs> now that may be true. Anyone who slaughters innocent life for their own selfish imperialist agendas, be it tens of thousands of people, as we're seeing in this horrific bloodbath, or even simply one, is an evil freaking monster in our book. Now be sure to check out our previous episode about US involvement in Afghanistan, by the way, <laughs> but I digress. So is that it? Case closed? End of story? It's just those evil Russians again, doing what they always do? 
Let's all wave the flag and give Ukrainian President Zelensky a blank check so we can defend democracy and stop the bloodiest conflict on European soil since World War II? And another important question we need to grapple with, who's profiting from all this carnage? Because as we know from the so-called war on terror, weapons manufacturers made a killing during that dark era in American history. Something tells me there's more to the story than what they're forcing down our brains. I'm Manny Faces, producer, audio editor, and host of the reigning New York Press Club Journalism Podcast of the Year, Newsbeat, where among other things, we strive to correct false narratives fed to the unsuspecting public to suit the ideological cravings of narcissistic and capitalistic megalomaniacs, tyrants, and presidents. We expose the truth through musically infused independent journalism. Now, another person who does a fantastic job of cutting through the propaganda to get at the heart of the real issues at play is Jennifer Briney, our guest and host of the fantastic podcast, Congressional Dish. Also adding his critical analysis about what the hell's really going on is Sam Ratner, policy director of the nonprofit Win Without War. Now, before we get into it, just a quick reminder to subscribe to our free Substack newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com for new episode drops, updates, bonus content, and much, much more. We'd also love it if you dropped us a review wherever you listen to us. And if you want to reach out directly, shoot us an email at usnewsbeat at gmail.com. All right, here it is. This is Ukraine War, Proxies, Profits, and Propaganda. I think it is really important to understand where this conflict really started. I do think a lot of Americans think that this came kind of out of nowhere, and it really didn't. And the fact that this is happening while Joe Biden is president is quite relevant. When Joe Biden was the vice president in 2013, there was a president who was democratically elected in Ukraine. His name was Viktor Yanukovych. And he was in the process of working out a trade deal with the European Union. One of the things that I think that the American public isn't quite aware of is that the reason we have our military all over the world and what we are doing in this world is that we are trying to create a global economic system that is housed in the World Trade Organization. This has been happening for a very long time. It started in the wake of World War II in the late 1940s. And our country, both Democrats and Republicans, are devoted to making this a global system. This is key to understanding everything that's going on in the world. And so these trade agreements are how countries are assimilated into the system. But the key to this system and what we're asking of countries when we bring them into the system is privatization. We want these countries to open up their country to multinational corporations. That's really who we're functioning for on the global stage. And so Ukraine needed money. The man ousted from power just five years ago appears to have been voted back in. Viktor Yanukovych has claimed victory in Ukraine's presidential election. Viktor Yanukovych, as the president, was working out this trade deal where if he took the billions of dollars that was being offered by the world trade system, specifically the International Monetary Fund, which the country needed, he would also have to change his laws in ways that were not great, let's say, for the Ukrainian people. We wanted them to, for instance, privatize their entire electric grid. Ukraine is also blessed 
and cursed with a lot of fertile agricultural land. And so we wanted our companies, our companies, meaning the multinationals, because these are not countries that are loyal to the United States in any way. But, you know, Monsanto wanted to get in there and have access to that agricultural land. And, and then Ukraine also is a transportation hub for fossil fuel, specifically gas. They have pipelines going from Russia into Europe. And then also, Ukraine has a lot of unfracked natural gas underneath their soil, and the multinationals want it so that they can pull it out of the ground and sell it and profit from it. A miracle didn't happen, and European Union leaders and Ukraine have, as expected, failed to sign an historic free trade deal after a last-minute U-turn from Kiev. Ukraine's President Viktor Yanukovych still attended the Eastern Partnership Summit in Vilnius, but under economic pressure from Moscow, he's revived trade talks with Russia, and nothing the EU said could make him change his mind. He decided instead to partner with his next-door neighbor, Russia, which had offered Ukraine $15 billion in the loans that they were seeking, also offered discounts in gas, and didn't have any of these strings attached that said, if you take our money, you have to change our laws and sell off your country's assets. It was a very public display of affection, an affirmation of the close cultural and economic links between Russia and the Ukraine. But the meeting at the Kremlin between President Putin and the Ukraine leader Viktor Yanukovych produced more than just memories of a shared history. Among the protocols signed at the Kremlin, a landmark agreement by Russia promising to reduce the price of its sales of natural gas to Ukraine by a huge 30%. And from that moment forward, the United States government decided that this man should no longer be president of Ukraine. Maidan, the name of a square in the center of Kiev, also known as Independence Square. Maidan, also now shorthand for the revolution that turned Ukraine upside down five years ago. For three months, it was the setting for huge demonstrations, then riots, all in the name of the European dream. It all began on the 21st of November 2013. The Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, announced that he would not sign an agreement which had taken five years to negotiate between his country and the European Union. Yanukovych in favor instead of closer ties with Russia. At the time, Ukraine, it must be said, on the verge of bankruptcy, owing Moscow a huge debt of $17 billion for natural gas. But the president's decision provoked the extreme anger of pro-Europeans who took to the streets. At the end of the month, anti-riot police charged demonstrators, the violent images angering the international community and reinforcing the movement back home. And what the United States did, specifically our State Department, is that we funded a lot of those protest groups. And our State Department has a lot of shady ways of getting money to different people. And so the details of that, we're really not sure. What we do know is before Yanukovych was thrown out of office, which happened in February of 2014, there was a phone call that was leaked between a high-ranking official in the State Department. Her name is Victoria Newland. And our ambassador to Ukraine, he was Jeffrey Pyatt. And in this phone call, you can hear them planning who would be in charge of a new Ukrainian government. Now, again, this is before anything happened. And the exact people that they named three weeks later ended up becoming the people in charge of Ukraine, specifically Ukraine's finances. So this coup happened. The details of that, 
it's all very shady. We're not sure who shot whom on the square. They call it the Maidan Square. But in the end, what happened is the person that was picked by Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt on that call. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. Ended up taking over Ukraine's finances. His name was Arseny Yatsenyuk, and he immediately signed that trade agreement with the European Union. And the U.S. Congress passed a law immediately that sent over the course of the eight years that followed billions of dollars, at least $6 billion, weapons and trainers. And we essentially built Ukraine a military in order to defend this new government from Russia, which was obviously going to be pissed to see that the government that they had just partnered with was overthrown with evidence that the United States was deeply involved. In the days that came after that coup, and we're talking like 48 hours after, Vladimir Putin as president of Russia, I don't want to say he invaded a peninsula off the coast because this peninsula off the coast of Ukraine is called Crimea. And Crimea has always housed Russia's Black Sea Fleet. It's one of their biggest military installations. And they were essentially renting that land from the Yanukovych government and the governments before that. That is what is constantly referred to as the starting point of this in Western media, where the real starting point happened in the preceding months and days where the government was overthrown. That part of the story keeps being left out of, out of the, the calculations. The reason this is so key right now is that in that phone call, Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt are planning who's going to be in the new government. And they mentioned someone higher up who is going to come in and get the deets to stick, as in the details. And the person that they named was then Vice President Joe Biden. Well, Mr. President, uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's, uh, and thank you for welcoming me once again. Uh, this is my third trip in the last seven months. You must be getting tired of seeing me as often as you do. And then Joe Biden becomes president in 2021. Victoria Newland, that person that was on the call, has been promoted. She's now the number two person in our State Department. Ever since that coup took place in 2014, there has been a civil war in Ukraine. It's seven years since war broke out in eastern Ukraine between separatists backed by Russia and the Ukrainian government. Since then, more than 13,000 people have been killed and over a million uprooted from their homes. And so all of this money that we have been sending and this military that we have been creating for the, the coup government, for the Ukrainian government, that money and those weapons have been used to fight the Ukrainians who are upset about their own government getting overthrown, the Ukrainians that wanted to partner with Russia in the East. And for eight years, we did not care or do anything to stop that civil war. And 80%, and this is according to the UN, a Western organization, according to the United Nations, 80% of the casualties have been on the Eastern Ukrainian slash Russian side. But when it comes to our government, the policy right now is that this war is going to continue until all of that property comes back into the Ukrainian government's hands, including Crimea, which, like I said, since 2014 has been peacefully a part of Russia. And so we are setting very unrealistic goals in a, in a proxy war.
Russia has made significant advances since last week in the north and southeast, but, but it has not been the rapid takeover, rapid takeover that some had predicted, and Russian forces have not yet taken the capital. I think the Russians miscalculated. They miscalculated the resistance of the Ukrainians, the determination of the Ukrainian army to fight, the determination of the Ukrainian people to support the military and indeed to fight themselves. I think that the Russians also underestimated the powerful effects of sanctions, and so it's uh, it's causing Russia to have some second thoughts. Some second thoughts. We are getting reports this morning, military analysis from both the Pentagon and from the UK defense military, and they credit Ukraine's military for stalling the Russian advance. Again, 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 again. The fight back, the fight back. they say, is much harder than the Kremlin expected. At this summit, we rallied our alliances to meet both the direct threats of Russia poses to Europe and the systemic challenges that China, China poses to a rules-based world order. I'm very honored to be with a very distinguished congressional delegation that has traveled here to send a clear message to the world. America stands with Ukraine. We stand with Ukraine until victory is won. Do not be bullied by bullies. If they're making threats, you cannot back down. That's my view of it, that you, you we're there for the fight, for the fight. And you cannot, uh, you cannot fold to a bully. The plain fact is, is that since 2014, the Ukrainian military has been funded, trained, really created from the ground up by the most powerful military force in the world. So this is a sophisticated military that has been training to be interoperable with NATO. Now, I think Ukraine mistakenly thought that if something did go down in their country because they were interoperable with NATO, maybe NATO would come to their defense. That hasn't happened. What NATO is doing instead, and when I say NATO, I mean the United States. We are sending the vast, vast, vast majority of the money and weapons. But we are funding the Ukrainians and letting them fight on their own. Aid to Ukraine arriving just in time. The nearly 14 billion in military and humanitarian assistance passed by the U.S. Congress in March has almost run out. This massive new package passed with bipartisan support in a vote of 86 to 11. So I read through that law and a lot of this is funded with transfer authorities, which means that it goes into one account that account itself can allow the money to go to like 15, 20 different places, and then it's allowed to be transferred around. But what I can tell you is the money that was specifically for the things that I think the American people wanted, helping the refugees, feeding the refugees, like helping the Ukrainian people, was vastly underspent in compared to what's going to go towards weapons of war. The vast majority of this is going towards buying weapons. Now, what we've been doing this whole time this is a simplistic way of thinking about it, but we've had a lot of weapons sitting on our shelves in our overstocks. And so we've been sending Ukraine all of those. A lot of that $40 billion is going to go towards replacing those weapons for us so that we can keep sending weapons to Ukraine, which means that so much of this money is just being funneled directly to Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, you know, General Dynamics, the, the big companies that make all of our weapons. It really is a welfare program for them. 
because there's nothing in there capping their profits or requiring them to sell anything at some like, you know, discount price or anything in return for this. It's just, we're buying the weapons. They can charge whatever they please. That's the vast majority of the, the money, unfortunately. And so what we're seeing now, you're going to see hear a lot of reports of, you know, Biden sending 450 million and 500 million, just these little spurts of, of weapons and money. That is that $40 billion being allocated. So if you want to know the specifics, which weapons are being sent, we are sending more and more sophisticated and deadly weapons. In a guest essay published Tuesday evening in the New York Times, President Joe Biden confirmed that he's decided to provide the Ukrainians with more advanced rocket systems and munitions that will enable them to more precisely strike key targets on the battlefield in Ukraine. What I can tell you big picture, though, is that when we spend money on our military, there are many studies that are showing half of it goes to contractors. Half of it goes to private companies. Like, we're not doing a lot in-house anymore. So that can give you an estimate of how much is going into shareholder pockets. As Russian troops poured across Ukraine's border, kicking off the Russian invasion in late February, something else was happening at the same time in New York. The stock prices of the biggest U.S. weapons manufacturers spiked, many eventually climbing to their highest point in years. The thing to know about how how these bills are made is that they are made largely in a black box. The administration's request for funding comes in and Congress deliberates really behind closed doors on these things. We either back Ukrainian people as they defend their country or we stand by as the Russians continue their atrocities and aggression in Ukraine. The combination of that level of opacity and the the outcomes that we see create this situation where it's really hard to avoid the conclusion that effectively votes are getting bought. Even if you set aside the campaign contribution, even if you focus just on you know, personal enrichment of members of Congress. Speakers on Capitol Hill were trading stocks in defense companies, just as Russia was getting ready to invade Ukraine. One of those lawmakers is the Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. Records show she bought stock in the defense contractor Lockheed Martin just one day before the invasion started last month. Lockheed Martin and Raytheon jointly make these missile launchers called Javelins. The United States already sent thousands of them to Ukraine, and President Biden just promised the country thousands more to help defend against the Russian forces. On the same day Congresswoman Green made the Lockheed investment, she also tweeted in part, War and rumors of war is incredibly profitable and convenient. I think this, this is an interesting case because Representative Green did actually vote against the supplemental, but it also didn't matter because she knew that it would pass because there is there is such a wellspring of support for this effort that she was able to play both sides. She's far from the only one. Look at members of Congress who are investing in weapons manufacturers at the same time that they're voting on delivering handouts to the same weapons manufacturers. Even in this situation, we're still seeing war profiteers do their thing. The system that we have for doing this is so rooted in corruption that there's just no way to get around it. This conflict has been funded in two major tranches at this point. So in, back in March, there was a, a large government spending bill 
that included a little bit under $14 billion in aid to Ukraine. And of that, about half was weapons. Then Congress passed another supplemental for Ukraine on top of that initial $14 billion. And this new one is a shade over $40 billion. And about half of that is just weapon, just security-related spending. Today, President Biden directed the drawdown of an additional $700 million in weapons and equipment from the Department of Defense inventories. The capabilities in this package are tailored to meet critical Ukrainian needs for today's fight, including requirements for rocket artillery. This authorization is the 11th drawdown of equipment from DOD inventories for Ukraine since August of 2021. The capabilities in this package include high mobility artillery rocket systems or high guided munitions with a range of up to 70 kilometers, five counter artillery two radar surveillance, 1,000 additional javelins and launch units, 6,000 anti armor 15, weapons, 15,155 millimeter artillery rounds, four MI 17 helicopters, 15 tactical vehicles, and spare parts and equipment. One of the best ways to understand the role that defense contractors play as brokers of American strategy in a lot of ways in the Ukraine conflict and in basically all conflicts that the U.S. is involved in is to just look at what contractors say about the situation in Ukraine. All of these are public companies. They have to make earnings calls and talk to their shareholders. And A, they're, they're required to be a bit upfront about what they think about things. Uh, and also B, they have no fear of suffering any consequences for saying <laughs> that, that what to think about things. Uh, so they're, they're a really interesting group to draw from when thinking about how American power works. You know, what we've seen in the wake of the Ukraine invasion is A, huge expected profits from these companies. So for example, you know, in the run up to the invasion, I think Germany announced that it would purchase F-35s, uh, which are made by Lockheed Martin for an outrageous sum of money. Defense Minister Christine Lambrecht announced on Monday that Germany wants to buy 35 such jets to replace the Tornado fighter jets put into service more than 40 years ago, which, like the F-35, can carry American atomic bombs to their target. After that announcement, Lockheed's stock hit a high of $469, over 40% jump from where it was four months previous. You know, pretty good return for members of Congress who were buying Lockheed stock. And we've seen that really across the industry. The CEO of Raytheon is this guy, Greg Hayes, who I, I particularly appreciate because he just says stuff. He just lays it out. He said at the start of the conflict, he was like, we are seeing, I would say, opportunities for international sales. Uh, so I expect we're going to see some benefit from it. Is it, you know, his kind of just general vibe. That was, that was a quote. But I think my favorite Hayes quote around the conflict is specifically regarding the replenishment funds that I was referring to earlier. Greg Hayes just came out and said, everything that's being shipped into Ukraine today, of course, is coming out of stockpiles, either at DOD or from our NATO allies. And that's all great news. Eventually, we'll have to replenish it, and we will see a benefit to the business over the next coming years. That's a quote from Greg Hayes. The way that these companies are willing to lay out in the public square the extent to which their profits are directly connected to pro-militarist decisions being made by the U.S. government, at the same time that these companies are supporting decision makers financially, both in the sense of campaign contributions and in the sense of you know happily accepting stock buying requests, is outrageous. You can see it all kind of laid out there. 
and you know this isn't new for ukraine this has been the case for you know as long as we've had a military industrial complex there's nothing less happening than major war crimes responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable and together with our allies and our partners we're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. The steps we've already taken are predicted to shrink Russia's gross domestic product by double digits this year alone. Just in one year, our sanctions are likely to wipe out the last 15 years of Russia's economic gains. And because We've cut Russia off from importing technologies like semiconductors and encryption security and critical components of quantum technology that they need to compete in the 21st century. We're going to stifle Russia's ability and its economy to grow for years to come. You know, we won't be able to advertise every piece of security we give because our allies and partners are supplying to Ukraine through us. But advanced weapons and ammunition are flowing in every single day. And as you may have seen yesterday on television, when the Secretary of Defense was being cross-examined by one of our, how can I say, our congresspersons, <laughs> saying, what have you done? And he basically looked at him and said, what the hell do you think we've done? Why do you think you're able to fight? We've trained them and we've given them the weapons. That's what's happening. That's hard to tell. It's, it's a bit early uh, still, even though we're a month plus into the war. Um, there is much of the ground war left in Ukraine. But I do think this is a very protracted conflict. Uh, and I think it's at least measured in years. I don't know about decade, but at least years for sure. Uh, this is a very extended conflict that Russia has initiated. Uh, and, and I think that uh, NATO, uh, the United States, Ukraine, and all of the uh, allies and partners that are supporting Ukraine are going to be involved in this for quite some time. What is very clear from their own words is that the people making the decisions in the Biden administration see this as an opportunity to bleed Russia to the point that they either go broke or they don't have enough weapons left. The goal is to hurt Russia so badly that they can't wage war anymore and therefore are neutralized as an enemy. There's a lot of references going back to Afghanistan in the 1980s. I think they're seeing a replay there, which they're missing the irony that we went and did the same thing in Afghanistan. But the Russians did spend a lot of time, treasure, lives in Afghanistan, and it did weaken them for a while. And so that's the strategy. The Eagle and the Bear. Dispatches from the Cold War. Dateline, 1979, Afghanistan. On December 24, 1979, the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan. The first Soviet invasion of a country outside the Eastern Bloc since World War II. Modern tanks and sophisticated technology were pitted against the poorly armed and politically divided tribes of Afghanistan warriors. But despite the Soviet Union's superior arms, the Soviets were up against the fierce independence and fervent religion of the Afghan people. The war was proclaimed a jihad, a holy war, where martyrdom could be achieved by dying, fighting the invader. 
And Afghanistan has a long history of winning such wars, of making life very unpleasant for those who try to oppress it. We are prolonging this war, and the consequence of that is that it's the Ukrainian people whose homes will continue to get blown up, whose shopping malls will get blown up, whose lives will be lost. We're going to experience extreme violence because they are fighting essentially for us in this proxy war being waged between these two economic systems. Russia's relations with the West may be strained, but in the East, they are flourishing. Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping met for talks in Beijing on Friday, where they pledged support for one another. The pair issued a joint statement calling for NATO to halt its expansion, a further sign of the deepening of the relationship between the two neighbors. The joint statement included harsh criticism of the United States. It said Russia and China opposed further enlargement of US-led NATO and called on the alliance to abandon its ideologized Cold War approaches. A halt to NATO's eastward addition of new member states is a key demand of the Kremlin in its standoff with the West over Ukraine. If you look at the big picture, Russia and China are the two most powerful countries in the other competing economic system. And so I think the Biden administration is calculating is if they can weaken one, then they weaken the economic system, even though the reality on the ground appears that they're doing the exact opposite. They're solidifying that other system because other countries are horrified by the amount of power that we seem to be wielding, cutting off the Russian people from... Because that's the thing, Vladimir Putin's not suffering from these sanctions. It's the Russian people that can't use their credit cards. It's the Russian people that showed up to go to their, their jobs at the metro and their cards wouldn't work. So it's the people that suffer when we do these things. It's the people that suffer in, in Ukraine. The global elites are fine. And so they're playing this master game of chess. People dying is just like, oh, so sad. But that's... That's as much as they care about it. They're looking at the big picture. They're looking at the money. And they think that if they can sideline Russia, their economic system wins. Well, damn. I hope that cleared some things up for you. It sort of makes you feel like we're all just being played a little bit, huh? Well, the true tragedy here, of course, as our guests Jennifer Briney and Sam Ratner stressed for us, are all the innocent people being slaughtered as these two superpowers play their lethal game of geopolitical chess. It's always the people who suffer. Now, we recommend you listen to and support our guest Jennifer Briney's podcast, Congressional Dish, available on all your favorite pod apps and at congressionaldish.com. And our guest Sam Ratner's nonprofit, Win Without War. Check them out at winwithoutwar.org. As always, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast, Newsbeat, wherever you listen. Subscribe to our free Substack newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com for new episodes, updates, bonus content, and more. Check out usnewsbeat.com for past episodes and more information about us, including extended guest bios and information about our artists and residents. We'd also love to hear from you. So anytime you want, send us an email at usnewsbeat at gmail.com. Once again, I'm Manny Faces, and on behalf of the entire Newsbeat and Mori Creative Studios teams, we thank you for listening. Back soon. Peace. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophet of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. <laughs>